Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. We are totally living up to the hype today. I'm just going to let you know it. Lynn, on that, all right? We're in week, we're in week six. This is our, our first kind of half chapter. We're looking at six of the minor prophets now. We'll look at six in the early spring. So this is our last dive into the minor prophets for this part of the series. We spent the last five weeks talking about and learning about some of these ancient stories of the so-called minor prophets, not because of the importance of what they have to say, but just because of the size and scope of their writings. And today I'm excited because this is one of the best, in my opinion, minor prophets stories. It's the one that you probably know about even before we get started, right? Today is a story about getting trapped inside of a giant whale, but then he lights a candle, you remember, and the whale spits him out, and at the end of the movie, he becomes a real boy. Have you heard this story? slightly off base, right? That's Pinocchio, but it's very similar to our story today. We're going to be talking about the minor prophet Jonah. Jonah is, of course, the best known as the minor prophet who kind of lived this story, being stuck inside of a giant fish. The only problem is that I'm afraid that we treat Jonah just like Pinocchio, that it's a great moral story, but ultimately it's not something we can believe in, not something we can trust, not something that's meaningful and impactful for our lives. See, these miraculous stories in the Bible are so far from perhaps our modern understanding of the world that we're quick to dismiss them as simplistic or uninformed or just as good moral stories. And in doing so, we relegate the Bible to children's stories, and then we wonder why our faith is insufficient when we grow up. We stop believing in the Bible just as we stop believing that animals talk and that movies display reality. And so today, as we dive into a well-known story, it's a story that perhaps you think you know. I, I want you to look at it with fresh eyes, with adult eyes, but also with faith. Because while there are some fish stories in Jonah, the underlying purpose and principles are so much broader than that. And my hope is that we'll find our ourselves in the story of Jonah as we look into the Scripture today. So let's go ahead and do that. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to Jonah. Uh, if you'd like to use one of the Worship Center Bibles, you can slip your hands up. Our ushers would love uh, to bring you a Bible. We'll be on page 436 in the Worship Center Bible, 436. And if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. But I hope that you're also doing the Bible reading challenge as well. The, the point with these sermons is to set you up to be able to understand and dig a little bit deeper into the Scriptures in your own walk, because to better understand your own faith and your own walk with Jesus, you have to grow in that area of your devotion, not just simply listen to what someone with a microphone has to say. So, Jonah this week is your reading challenge. Jonah takes place in about the 8th century uh, BC. We don't know very much about him. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom. We've been talking about this northern kingdom, southern kingdom relationship. He's probably before the fall of the northern kingdom kingdom in 722, which is the date that we've been talking about. But unlike some of his other contemporaries like Amos, Jonah isn't actually a prophet to Israel. He's more like Obadiah. He's a prophet to a group of people. You may remember that Obadiah is a prophet to the Edomites, these group of people who are related. Jonah is a prophet specifically to the Assyrians, and he's called specifically to a town 
called Nineveh. If you've got your Bibles open, let's jump in. Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh is the capital of a country called Assyria, and we've mentioned the Assyrians a few times. You can see kind of where it is in relationship to Israel and Judah down there on the lower left, and then Assyria and Nineveh up there on the right. And in case it isn't clear yet, the Assyrians are bad dudes. And it's not just because we're on the opposite end of history as them reading through the prophets, but they do destroy the northern kingdom here in a couple uh, years. But it's more than that. It's because they record over and over again the way in which they conquer other people. They're specifically noted for their cruelty to captured opponents. They were ruthless in their destruction, and they're also known for their painful executions and tortures as well. Needless to say, maybe there's a reason why Jonah didn't want to go pay a visit to the Ninevites, right? He knows that these are bad dudes, right? But what's a prophet to do? When you hear the Lord's voice, you don't have a choice, That's not in your notes, but you should write that down, right? When you hear the Lord's voice, you don't have a choice. So let's pick up the story. Next verse, Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. I guess that's one way to live your life. And he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah hears the Lord and instead of obeying, he literally goes in the opposite direction. Nineveh is to the north and east and he heads due west. Now, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is, but scholars maintain that it's kind of an idea of like a borderland. It's a fantasy land out there somewhere. Basically, Jonah is trying to go as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can. Now, this is in your notes, and so if we were to characterize the first chapter of Jonah, we might say something like this. Chapter 1 is Jonah running away from God. Jonah running away from God. He hears the Lord's voice to go to Nineveh. He's not down with that plan, and so he's like, no, I'm just going to take care of this myself, and he's going to run the opposite direction. We'll discover some deeper reasons perhaps behind that later in the book, but this is to say that, and this is why you came to church today, right? Spoiler alert, when you don't go the direction that God calls you, it doesn't end well for you, right? Like that's just a little spoiler here. Verse 4, let's keep reading. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and they each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him, and he said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish.'" Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rough.
taxes and in your calendars and in your schedules, or are those laws too antiquated? Is that too Old Testament for you to obey today? See, too often we want the spectacular call, like the call of Jonah and the story that follows, and we think that this is the way in which God works, but we miss the call that he's already placed before us to obey him in the places that are obvious in Scripture and obvious in our lives. One of the biggest problems, though, with the story of Jonah as we jump back into it is that it's so familiar with us that we stop the story short. Too often we assume that the meaning of the story comes right here in this first part because we know what's happening. The only recourse for disobedience is obedience. So we hit fast forward on the rest of the three chapters in the story. We sum up Jonah like this, disobedience, fish, obedience, the end. That's how we think the story goes. I'm here to tell you that there's so many more rich nuances tucked away in this book. Because if we stop the story there, the moral of the story becomes obey God or else. Obey God or he'll get you. Listen to God or you'll suffer. Follow God or you'll be swallowed up by the bad things of life. And this reading, not only of Jonah, but of the entire Bible, is a gross misrepresentation of our faith because the reality is that God is not out to get Jonah. He's got a massive story of hope and redemption, and he wants Jonah to be the star of the show. All right, let's jump back into our story. Where were we? Storm, storm, storm. Ah, yes, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is where our modern sensibilities get a little bit offended, right? You may have seen Pinocchio and say, I thought that I heard it was a whale. There's a word for whale in Hebrew. This isn't it. It's a fish. Maybe you couldn't understand how there's a fish that big, how they could swallow a human, how a human could stay alive in the stomach of a fish or breathe underwater. And I'm here to tell you I don't have answers to that. Sorry. So if that's what you're after, uh, I can't help you today. But I do think that this line of questioning misses a major, major point, which is, of course, have you ever stopped to consider how disgusting this is? Like, just absolutely revolting. Like, I'm an indoor kid. I won't even touch the outside of a fish. Like, I'm not even, I'm not even going there, right? All you sushi people living in Denver, you need to wake up, right? Sushi is on the other side of the world from here, and even still, I'm not eating fish because fish is disgusting, right? All of that to say that Jonah is easily, hands down, the most disgusting minor prophet in the Old Testament, right? And there isn't even a second. Uh, maybe Andrew played that locust swarm video from Joel. Okay, that's a close second. Still not even close to being stuck in a gross, disgusting fish for three days, right? But, but take a mental journey with me, right? Just hypothetically, if you were stuck inside a disgusting fish for three days, what would your attitude be? How positive would you be? How glass half full would you be? I, for one, would be a little tense, okay? Now, being a person of faith, I'd, I'd like to think that I would pray like Jonah prays. I'd, I'd like to think that I'd go to God, but I think you could sum up my prayer like this. Dear God, please get me out of this fish. Amen right? Like that's the entirety of what I'm praying for three days and three nights. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go to Nineveh. Just get me out of this fish. Pretty, pretty please. P.S. It stinks. Amen. 
right? This is the sum of my entire prayer. But Jonah is slightly more holier than I am. Jonah chapter 2 records his prayer inside the belly of the fish. I don't know how he's writing inside the belly of the fish. I'm not going to answer that today. Nonetheless, this is the prayer that he prays. He doesn't necessarily quote Psalms, but, but he alludes to Psalms. He refers back to a very specific Psalm. And broadly speaking, the, the Psalms are categorized into two categories. There are songs of lament, which is a lament. It's a woe is me, God come save me, help me get out of this mess. And then there's psalms of of thanksgiving. There's psalms of gratefulness. Thank you, God, for all that you've given me, all the ways that you've provided for me. Now, I personally would find myself in the lament psalm category, right? That is the psalm that I would be praying. Jonah doesn't do that, though. Jonah's psalm is emphatically characterized by thanksgiving and gratefulness. In fact, we could summarize chapter 2 as Jonah running toward God. Chapter 1 is running away in the opposite direction. Chapter 2 is Jonah returning to God. And Jonah's prayer is one of thanksgiving for all that God has done. In other words, instead of wallowing at the fact that he's stuck inside a disgusting fish, he's just grateful to be alive. Let's take a look at just the tail end of his prayer there, Jonah chapter 2, verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Do you hear the lilt and the hope in his prayer? Which let's talk about you and I for a second. When life gets you down, where do you more readily go? Do you go to prayers of lament, woe is me, God save me, or do you go to prayers of thanksgiving? Thank you, God, for all that you have given me, for all the areas that you've provided for. Jonah is inside of a disgusting fish, but he still seems to see the story as a glass half full. He still seems to see a way out, grateful for all that God has given him. And that perspective can go a long way in our lives as we follow after God. See, often it's not the problems that we face, but our reaction to them that determines our perspective, our satisfaction, our ability to understand the life that we've been given. And when life gets us down, when we say, woe is me, God, why didn't you save me? Don't you love me? I thought you were good. We develop a cynical, standoffish relationship with God where unless he answers our prayers, then we won't follow and obey which isn't much of a relationship. It's more of a manipulation to get God to do what we want him to do. But if we cultivate this attitude of gratefulness, of faith, and of testimony to see how God works, and even in our hardest moments, our perspective shifts from one of defeat to victory, from one of woe is me to how great is God, to can this situation get any worse to at least I've got God on my side. And we're going to need that perspective because usually before things get better, they get a little bit worse, and that's absolutely true for Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Right? Talk about kicking a guy when he's down, right? In Sunday school, you may have heard the word spit, uh, but if you've ever taken anatomy, you know that you don't spit from your stomach, uh, so the word is vomit, right? And uh, that's disgusting again. This is why Jonah is the most disgusting prophet. But I want you to think about the grace here, too, because if you're in the belly, 
there, there are only two ways out. And this is the better of the two, right? Can we agree about that this morning? Like, there's even grace in the midst of this disgusting situation. Hashtag Jonah is the most disgusting prophet. I want to see that trending today, people. Let's go. The moral of the story is, right, things can always get worse. All joking aside, what do you do when God's plan stinks? Last joke, I promise. Sorry. What do you do when God's plan stinks, when it doesn't measure up to what you want, when you get swallowed up and spit out by a giant fish, vomited, excuse me, what do you do when they get the promotion? What do you do when God is blessing them but not you? What do you do when you've tried your best but it still doesn't work out right, when life seems hard, when God seems distant, when you would rather do anything than the task in front of you? What do you do when God's plan for your life stinks? Let's sum up chapter 3, which is where we're going from here, running with God. Jonah runs away from God, then he runs back toward God, and now he's going to be in step with God as he moves forward. Jonah is back on track. He stinks and it was messy, but God graciously comes alongside him, commands him again to go to the city of Nineveh, and this time Jonah obeys. Jonah's received grace from God, and he now dispenses it, a bit begrudgingly, as we'll learn towards the end of the story, because on top of being the grossest prophet, Jonah also delivers the shortest prophetic word of any minor prophet that we have. Here is his prophetic word to his charged subjects. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the whole prophetic message in the book of Jonah. Other prophets take 8, 10, 12 books to tell their prophecies. This is the entire prophecy of Jonah. It's under 10 words, right? If that's what you ran away from saying, Jonah, I'm just going to say you made a bad choice, right? Like those 10 words are much easier uh, than the whole ordeal that you just went through. But this is where the book starts to get good because here's the thing about the city of Nineveh. Jonah goes, he has this oracle, and they actually listen, verse five of chapter three. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning and a contrite heart. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, a symbol of the significance of the event. He took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he, the king, issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. 
right? Even the animals repent. I don't know how you keep flocks from eating and drinking, but this is a big deal, right? This book is about fish and animals all responding to the call of God in this story, which is slightly redeeming, but still the grossest book ever. But Jonah obeys God. He preaches this simple message, and if you notice, he doesn't even call them to repent. He just says, you're going to die, deal with it. And the people of Nineveh go, no, we're going to do something about it. They do it on their own. The king has everyone repent, and God relents on his judgment from destruction to salvation. He decides to honor their contrite plea and not destroy them. And this is a great place to end the story here in chapter 3, right? The angsty young prophet who disobeys the Lord. You're not my dad. And he goes the opposite direction, right? A storm brews. Cue the special effects. He's tossed overboard. The huge CGI fish in 3D real animation leaps off the screen. A repentant prayer followed by obedience and repentance by the most evil people on earth and cut now we're challenging Avengers in the box office, right? This is the story of Jonah. It's epic. It's huge. But the story doesn't end here. Actually, I think if we look at the message that Jonah's trying to tell us, all of this is just the precursor for the actual message of the book of Jonah, the actual thing that Jonah wants to say, because chapter 4, we could sum up in this way. We could say that Jonah is running ahead of God, running ahead of God. Let's look at chapter 4, starting at verse 1. But to this, but to Jonah, this, their repentance and God relenting on his judgment, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Wait, what? This is not a prophet speaking. This is not someone who follows God. See, Jonah says, look, I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place because I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you would show mercy. I knew that you're a God of love, and I didn't want that to happen. His running away from God wasn't out of fear. It was out of hatred. Not only is Jonah the grossest prophet, he's also the worst. You can't hate the people that God loves, especially if you're a prophet, because this is the real story of Jonah. I didn't want those people saved. God, you're supposed to be on our side. These people, the insiders, our crew. God, you're supposed to protect the ones that you love. And if you let those people in, have you seen the type of people that they are? They're horrible. They're disgusting. They're not like us. We've got it all put together, at least on the surface. And so, no, God, I won't go and save them. I won't go extend your grace to them because I don't want them to receive it. It's no stretch at all to say that Jonah was a racist. He's leveraging judgment on a group of people on nothing more than his preconceived ideology about what was right and true and good. And that looked like him, and it was from his side of the tracks. Jonah is a terrible prophet, not only because he disobeys, but because he actively works against the voice of God's movement in his life. And we've talked honestly about our church and our focus, and I'm afraid that we're sometimes a little bit too much like Jonah. 
I don't believe that we're racist. That's not at all what I mean. But I do think that we are surrounded by people that God calls us to love. We're surrounded by people who are far from God, and God wants to dispense grace to them. And in that dispensing of his grace, he calls us at some level to be the ones to take the gospel to them to love on people who are far from them, to reach out to our neighbors, to call them to follow after God, but sometimes we're a little bit too preoccupied with our social lives, with our calendars, with our hobbies, with our jobs, with our fill-in-the-blank. The bottom line is, too often I'm afraid that we want to protect the status quo, but God is calling us that there are people out there that I love, and he's asking us to go and to reach out to them, but I'm afraid that sometimes we don't love them in the same way that God does. We love ourselves, we love our priorities, we love people who look and think and act like us more than we love paying attention to the people that God has a heart for and He's calling us to reach out to. Here's the staggering truth. The book of Jonah isn't about disobedience, which is the easiest thing to pull out of that initial story, nor is it about obedience, finally listening to God. Its main thrust isn't about grace or even redemption of the Ninevite people. The central theme of Jonah is self-absorption a preoccupation with who we are and the life that we want to live and the kind of kingdom, the kind of people that we want to belong with. It's putting our own sense of accomplishment and worth and merit above others and letting our lives, even as the people of God, revolve around ourselves instead of the people around us that God is literally begging for us to reach out to. So if you want to know something honest this morning at church, I don't know that we'll see salvations in this church until we learn the message of Jonah, until we hear with open ears and hearts and minds that this isn't about a fish, this isn't about a God who will get us if we disobey. Jonah is about a God who so loved the world that we, like Jonah, ignore because it conflicts with our suburban dream. Jonah didn't simply disobey God. He harbored hatred in his heart. He wanted to keep things the way that they were. He did not want God's grace to extend to others. He wanted to protect himself. And when grace was extended, he was angry about it. He said, that's not fair. He felt wronged by God's endless love and compassion for the other people. Just like the older brother in Jesus' parable, Jonah is so caught up in his own slight that he misses the entire message of the gospel, that God is for everyone at every place at every time, whether holier than thou prophets or church attenders or pagan sinners who are completely unaware of their need for God. The good news is that just like Jonah, God has more grace for us, and he attempts to relay that at the end of Jonah's story in chapter 4. Let's pick it up at verse 5. Jonah had gone out, and he sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a, a leafy plant, and he made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind where the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Second time he uttered that phrase. 
But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. I'm so angry that I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I, the Lord, not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? That statement, not know their right from their left, is a statement to children. There are 120,000 children, uneducated people who haven't yet learned their right from their left. That's just the statement of the children. Now you can understand the scope of the city that Nineveh was. And God in His grace gives Jonah a plant, a small window on life, and when it's snuffed out, it makes Jonah so angry that he wishes he were dead. He said a rough couple days, right? Cut the guy some slack. God says that vine was nothing, and yet you're so moved with passion for it. Is it not right for me to act the same for the people that I care deeply about? God asks this question twice. Is it right for you to be angry? And this is the, the place where Jonah chooses to leave the story with these questions in the air, which leads me to just the wrap-up question here. Why does Jonah tell this story? After all, prophets write their own writings, you know. Why not go with the Hollywood blockbuster? If you were going to write a story about your life, if you were writing a memoir, you might be tempted to tell it with a positive spin, to end the story well. An answer for me personally that I would do is that I think that Jonah finally got it here at the end. I think that he finally understood this God who is compassionate and gracious and full of love because in this story, his story that he wrote about his life, he makes himself the villain. He exposes his inner ugliness, the reality of his heart, and he displays God's grace to work, not only to save God's people, the Israelites, not only to save his enemies, the Assyrians, but also those hearts of the people who are closed off to him, that they've become so used to knowing him that they've forgotten who he really is. Much like the story of Jonah that we all thought we knew if we, that we, so that we ignore actually reading it, Jonah exposes himself in order to make us come face to face with the God who loves everyone and everything with reckless abandon. Whether sinners or saints, whether rebel or alien, gay or straight, God pursues all. The question is, do we? The question is, do we obey God to go into the places in the world that we would rather not? Or are we pouting? Are we counting the, the badness of one sin over another, deciding which sins are allowed in the church and which aren't? Are we too concerned that God's love wrongs us at some level or that the plant that he gave us withered away? And instead of going to Nineveh, we may not run away, we may just stay put and hurl stones at anyone who comes close enough to challenge our views. And God, through the prophet Jonah 2,800 years ago, says, I love them, help me save them. Help me show them grace, and maybe in the process you'll discover grace for yourself as well. And that's the story of Jonah. 
I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'd just like to pray with you for a second. I'd encourage you to bow your heads, maybe to find yourself in a quiet moment. I dare you to to ask the questions of this story that we put forth. Where does God's grace perhaps offend you? Where are you far too concerned with what God's love means for you than you are with people who look or think or are different than you? Maybe you've let some situations in your life become more about disobedience and obedience instead of finding the grace that God has for everyone in the midst. Heavenly Father, God, we want to come to you first and foremost, God, and to repent of the ways that we perhaps focus grace on ourselves, the way that we've made the gospel solely about us and our relationship with you. God, we're sorry for only getting half of the story. God, would you convict us of those areas that we still have work to do? Would you challenge us and show us the people in our life who need your love and your grace? And would you equip us to be dispensers of it? Because we're the first and foremost ones who will tell you, God, that we need your grace more than anything. God, remind us of our own places and spaces first so that we may go not with conviction and not even with correction to the world around us, but we may go and lead with your love that we may invite people into this great and glorious heritage that we've experienced in you. God, as we've already sang about, none of us actually deserve this, and yet your love pursues us and comes after us. And so, God, would you help us to learn the lesson of Jonah? to not be so caught up with our own lives that we miss your call to love the world around us. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we trust you in the direction that you lead. We ask that you would continue to lead and guide us today and this week and all the days of our lives. All God's people said, amen.